We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Hello, I'm Nick Cater. Welcome to another Watercooler Conversation. Fifty years ago in December, a Labour government led by Gough Whitlam signed an historic agreement with Communist China, establishing diplomatic relations between Canberra and Beijing. The price China demanded and Australia paid was that we agreed to the One China policy, which demoted the independent nation of Taiwan to the status of a renegade Chinese province. Half a century later, with tension rising in the region, the communist government is demanding we stick to that agreement, recognising the right of the People's Republic of China to bring the Republic of China, that's Taiwan, under its control. Is Australia bound by the terms of the 1972 agreement, or should we follow our conscience by standing by Taiwan in the face of potential aggression from the mainland? Kevin Andrews was a member of the federal parliament for 31 years, serving as a minister in the governments of John Howard and Tony Abbott before retiring at the May federal election. He has recently returned from a fact-finding visit to Taiwan and he joins me now to share his first-hand insights and impressions. Kevin, welcome to Watercooler. Pleasure to be with you, Nick. Just give me a quick snapshot of what life is like there in Taipei at the moment. I've been visiting Taipei for 30 years my fifth visit, and I first went there before the first democratic elections back in the early 90s. So I've seen a marvellous transformation of Taiwan. People marvel about the economic miracle that the country is, but there's more than that. This is a free, vibrant, democratic country, uh, which came from a very different background to what it is now. And life in Taipei is what one would expect in the life of democracy. Uh, Despite COVID, people are out in the streets. People are getting on with their ordinary work and their ordinary life, but hanging over their heads, this threat from the communist regime on the mainland to want to take over Taiwan. And the morning or the morning after I arrived, there was a real reminder of that with air missile or air raid sirens sounding over Taipei, cars being cleared off streets, people going indoors, lights being turned off, businesses closed, etc. And this is just a fact of life in Taiwan for people who live there. But Walking through the streets of Taiwan, uh, apart from some obvious differences in terms of the culture, you could be walking through Sydney or Melbourne. I still think that the Whitlam government was wrong to go as far as it did. Canada, which had signed an agreement, I think, two years earlier, had not gone so far as to acknowledge China's claims quite in that way. The US, when it established relations after Nixon went to China, kept open a diplomatic relationship with Taiwan for at least, I think, eight years until Jimmy Carter's government in a hope of maintaining a two-China policy. There's no reason it seemed to them, and it seems to me, why we can't have good relations with both China, if we, if that's the People's Republic of China, and an independent island, which we might call Taiwan. But that aside, the case for standing by Taiwan, to me, seems much, much stronger now because of the direction the two countries have taken since. You know, the the promise that China would open up and become more democratic has not occurred. The old communists, turns out, the new communists, it turns out, are just like the old ones. Meanwhile, as you say, Taiwan has gone off in this really exuberant, great journey towards the sunlit uplands of democracy since, I guess, beginning in 1996 with the first directly elected presidential elections. That's so, very true, Nick. So it does make, it makes the choice a stark one now for us, and much easier to make in a sense. Yes. I think there was a sense that certainly in the 1980s and 90s that somehow China would become some form of democratic liberal nation, particularly under the Deng Xiaoping. 
regime. But under Xi Jinping, that's completely reversed. He's a doctrinaire Marxist. He believes that this Marxist polity is the best form of government that's ever been devised. The fact is that people don't get a say in it. But I think there's now a reality of that is that not for one nanosecond has the Chinese Communist Party ruled Taiwan. The Taiwanese have been independent as a matter of fact, regardless of what's claimed this way or that way. The reality is that Taiwan has been and is an independent country. It has a sovereignty which is distinct from that of China. And I think we can recognise the reality of that. I mean, we trade with China, we trade with Taiwan. Taiwan has applied to join the TPP, the Pacific Trading Partnership. There's no reason that they shouldn't do that. There's no reason that we can't have relations with China as well as we do with, with Taiwan. But China somehow managed to convince not just us, but the entire United Nations or a major- clear majority in the United Nations, I think in 1971, that essentially, let's not put too fine a point on it, Taiwan should be thrown out of the UN and China bought into it. That must have been just purely a political decision based on the fact of the matter, particularly as now the UN is willing to incorporate Palestine in, as a nation, but not Taipei. Yes. It's, so do the Taiwanese feel resentful at the course of events? The Taiwanese are very optimistic people. I've always found them to be incredibly so, given the circumstances of where they are geopolitically in the world. Yes, they would like much greater recognition for being this, in fact, a separate state, uh, and I think we should do that. We shouldn't be drumming them out or disallowing their voice in all sorts of international organisations, whether it's the World Health Organization, where we had a lot to learn from their experience, for example, in relation to COVID and what preceded COVID, through to other international organizations. I think the reality is that uh, anybody that looks at this in any way except through the kind of jaundiced glasses of the CCP will see the reality that Taiwan is this, in reality, a free independent state. What did you make of the reaction to the visit of uh, House Speaker? The Chinese are looking for a pretext um, to carry out the sorts of exercises which they did. And these exercises weren't planned overnight when they found out uh, two or three days earlier that Nancy Pelosi might be visiting Taiwan. These had been long planned and her visit gave them a pretext to be able to carry out these exercises, just as they've carried out some further exercises, I understand, when some other congressional leaders from the United States have visited Taiwan just in the last few days or so, just as they did when members of the Japanese died. Japanese parliament visited as well. So these are pretexts by as part of its ongoing bullying, if you like, of the world to say that nobody should visit Taiwan because it's not part of China unless we have their permission to visit there. And that's simply nonsense. My personal view is that we should be sending a minister to Taiwan, particularly a trade minister, given it's one of our major trading partners. The visit of uh, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott recently, I think, where he to Taipei, where he gave a magnificent speech, is that enough to ruffle Chinese feathers or is that too down, far down the pecking order for them to worry about? Look, I, I think anything ruffles their feathers, particularly if a former prime minister uh, visits. Uh, while I was there, the former president of Estonia was also there. Uh, there's a Canadian delegation going soon. But obviously, uh, current members of parliament or a congress visiting is something which particularly ruffles their feathers. And we see this sort of bellicose behaviour from the Chinese Communist Party when this occurs. But as I said, this is an attempt to bully people into not visiting Taiwan. There's no reason that legislators and leaders from other free countries in the world 
shouldn't visit Taiwan and have discussions with them, particularly uh, around issues like trade. Kevin, I was a foreign correspondent based in Hong Kong in 96. And like much of many of the, the Hong Kong press pack, we, we hot-tailed it to Taiwan for the 96 presidential elections, fully expecting that there would be all sorts of chicanery and violence and it would be a very ugly affair because we go, that's the kind of election you go chasing when you're a foreign correspondent, not a fair and peaceful one. But of course, it, it confounded us. I remember the crowds two or three deep in the street watching the soon-to-be president come through in a cavalcade, nothing but the most, a party atmosphere almost. It was just like they took to democracy like a duck takes to water. That surprised me. Did it surprise you? It haven't visited a number of times. It doesn't surprise me because I think that Taiwanese people are, they're very fair-minded people. They've elected not only the KMT, but the opposition DPP, current uh, president. Uh, Tsai uh, was re-elected recently and into a second term now. And that's gone off as smoothly as one would expect in a democracy such as Australia or Taiwan. They've come, they've come so far in the period of just 30 years. It's really amazing. And this is a beacon of democracy. It's a beacon of a capitalist economic system in that part of the world. And we should be standing up for them. The other observation I have which sticks in my mind from that period is this sounds like a cliche the warmth of the people but having spent a lot of time in mainland China as a correspondent often quite uncomfortably actually because journalists weren't particularly welcome there and I remember I I did spend one night under hotel arrest if you like because they thought for some reason I was a journalist but the contrast was stark in in China there was a much in, in in Taiwan there was a much warmer atmosphere I sensed a much stronger civic fabric in, 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 on the mainland if you came across a beggar in a street who'd fallen over or apparently fallen over. You, the last thing you'd do is stop to help them up because it could well be some scam which you'd be accused of knocking somebody over and taken in and, and scammed for a lot of money. That wasn't going to happen in Taiwan. And yet they are, of course, exactly the same, very similar stock of people. So that suggests to me that the problem in China is very much not the people, but the kind of civic society that that develops after well over half a century of oppressive, tyrannical, top-down government. Indeed. Where people are given the opportunity to freely express themselves, where they're given the opportunity to participate in a democratic process, and that's genuine, people respect that and they, they react the way Taiwanese have done. Changing governments as they do and have done on a regular basis, having regular elections. There's not a sense of quiet tyranny in Taiwan as there is in China. And I think this is the result of the way in which the two systems have developed. One which is authoritarian, autocratic rule that doesn't trust the people, that doesn't allow free association. You mentioned you know, the spirit of association in Taiwan. There are all sorts of civic groups. And one of the bedrocks of democracy is the existence, as Cockville pointed out in America years ago, of civil associations. And that exists in Taiwan in the way in which it exists in other healthy democracies, but it doesn't exist at all. In fact, it's, it's stamped out as much as possible on mainland China. You wrote perceptively, I thought, in The Spectator recently, that that was perhaps the very reason why China was so keen to take over Taiwan, because it, it disproved the official Chinese line that the Chinese people are not suited to democracy. I think that's true. I've given a lot of thought to Taiwan and a lot of thought to China, and I've read everything that I possibly can lay my hands on 
in terms of the attitudes and the behaviour of the communist regime. And I've always wondered, why is it that they're so fixated? Why is Xi Jinping so fixated in terms of wanting to effectively invade a free, healthy, democratic country 180 kilometres or so across the Taiwan Strait? And it does seem to me, and I think this is reflected in what's happening in Hong Kong, is that his assertion that somehow democracy is culturally inappropriate for people of a Chinese culture is wrong. And every day he looks at Taiwan, it must stare him in the face that his assertion is totally incorrect. I think the other part of that is that he's a doctrinaire Marxist like we've never seen before. Uh, you only have to read his writings to accept that. It's not my view of it. He, he basically says that himself, is that he believes that this regime that he's the head of in China is the highest form of government. It's the highest form of a organised polity that's existed on the face of the earth. And Taiwan, again, is a reminder every day that's not the case. Let's talk about trade between Australia and Taiwan. It's quite substantial, isn't it? It involves some pretty vital industries to our, our security and our economy. Yes, it's a quite significant trade. It's not our biggest trading partner, but it's one of our biggest trading partners. And certainly in the area of high tech in terms of imports from Taiwan, not just to Australia, but to America, to Europe, everywhere. Taiwan is the semiconductor capital of the world. And not just a total number of semiconductors, but they've got such a large portion of the high end of that market as well. And so if that semiconductor industry in Taiwan was to cease, then the activities, the economic activities of most of the world would come grinding to a halt very quickly. So we are very good trading partners with Taiwan. We, we export a lot of our agricultural produce there. We export a lot of our resources to Taiwan. And this has been a long-term arrangement, a long-term beneficial arrangement to both nations uh, between us and Taiwan. It's concerned me for some time this heavy reliance, not just we, but in the entire world has on the Chinese semiconductor market. Uh, it seems foolish in hindsight we allowed us to, uh, ourselves to get in this position. What moves are afoot do you, do you see, if any, to share that technology with Australia, but perhaps more more pertinently with the US so that we can start investing in a homegrown yes. semiconductor market. But it's certainly true that the Taiwanese are looking to invest elsewhere. They're starting uh, a major factory in Texas um, soon. I think there are opportunities. There's been talk about something similar happening in Europe as well. And I think we should be in there looking to see whether or not we can be part of that effective transfer in terms of technological knowledge and technological ability with Taiwan, well positioned to do it in terms of resources, etc. But being a, a friend of Taiwan over a long period of time, despite all the problems we've been talking about earlier, then the Taiwanese are very open to actually greater trade with Australia. I think there's two things that we should be pursuing. They've applied to join the TPP. I think we should be pursuing that uh, along with Japan and other like-minded countries to get them in as quickly as we can. And I also believe that we should be pursuing separately to that a free trade agreement with Taiwan. There's no reason we shouldn't do that. We could up, upgrade our trade agreements relatively easily. And in my discussions with officials in Taiwan from the president down, I think they would be very open to that sort of progress. Let's just talk about the direction China's taken. I think when you, certainly during the period of the Howard government, it seems to me we were going through a particularly good time with China. Hu Jintao was in power. He was quite outward Western-looking, lover of Shakespeare. 
Mr Howard, John Howard, our Prime Minister, got along with him very well and, and speaks fondly of that relationship. I think, though, correct me if I'm wrong, but we were in no doubt at that time that we were dealing with an authoritarian, authoritarian country with values towards freedom almost completely opposite to our own. And we probably had no doubt at that stage, since this was after well after Tiananmen Square, that there was no likelihood that China was going to change in the short term. But we were nonetheless able to divorce or separate issues around human rights or differences of that nature from the trading relationship and the cultural relationship to some extent. We had a lot of cultural exchanges. That, is that your perception? And when did that era come to a close? It's always difficult to put a, an exact time on when an era comes to a close and another one starts. But I think historians will look back at the election of Xi Jinping as the point at which the change had occurred. Perhaps it was occurring before that to some extent, but quite clearly Xi Jinping has taken a different line entirely to his predecessors, except perhaps going right back to Mao in the first place. So that's the major change. And I think there are aspects of that make China a different regime now than what it was, say, back at the time of the Howard government. Yes, there wasn't great uh, freedom for individuals in China, but there wasn't this total abuse of human rights, such as we've seen uh, against the Uyghurs in Jiangjing uh, uh, province in the west of uh, Taiwan. There wasn't what we've seen more recently with Hong Kong and the total crop crackdown there and the imp imposition of the national security laws in Hong Kong. So that has changed. And there wasn't the same degree of belligerence and the sort of bellicose nationalism which has been proclaimed by Xi and the military exercises and things like that. So we're dealing with I think, a qualitatively different regime to what we were, say, 20 years ago. Yeah, and for me, I think the, the effective takeover of Hong Kong uh, against the terms of the agreement signed with the United Kingdom for 50 years of uh, one country, two systems, uh, that was a threshold for me, which it was quite apparent that China had crossed into a territory in which it was not going to respect international law or international conventions anymore. Yeah, I think that was the turning point in the minds of many observers, including some who were still, if I can say, open-minded about the prospect of China somehow liberalising. I've been of the view for some time now that's not ever likely to happen, at least under the current rate. But there was a sense up until Hong Kong amongst some people that this idea of one country, two systems might be respected, but that's completely been trampled on. And that's why I think people in Taiwan are very mindful of this. It was interesting in Taiwan that whilst older people who had experienced the communist regime, if you go back far enough, were always very critical of what was happening in China, there was a sense amongst them over the years that maybe young Taiwanese wouldn't share their concerns because they'd never experienced a communist regime. They'd grown up in an increasingly liberal democratic country, namely Taiwan, and that therefore they might be more open to China itself and the overtures from China. But the reality of Hong Kong quickly changed their minds about that. And uh, if you look at recent surveys in Taiwan about the attitude of their people, you can see that up towards three quarters of people are of the view that they would fight, if necessary, to defend Taiwan. And this includes young people as well as older people. So there's been a remarkable turnabout. I think Hong Kong was key to it. But I think it was one of a number of events that occurred. I think the whole cover-up about the Wuhan virus, however it originated, uh, less that than the fact that there was 
refusal to cooperate in any sort of fair-minded open international investigation, I think that made people very suspicious of the Chinese regime. So there's been a series of events, I think, in the last two or three years that have awakened people to the reality of China. You were probably as nervous as I was before the federal election that we might see, in the event of a Labor government, a softening of attitude towards China, a change in direction for Australia's China policy. But I've been heartened, really very heartened, by the approach that's been taken, and in particular the the performance of Foreign Minister Penny Wong, who seemed to be able to step above many of our perceptions of her as a politician and really handle things with courage and assurance. Would you agree? I agree, Nick. I think the government has started off sure-footed in relation to foreign policy and national security and defence. It's an ongoing challenge for them. Um, whilst I had some concerns, I also had in the back of my mind that once they sat down around the table at a national security committee meeting uh, and were faced with the reality of what's happening, and I haven't sat at one of those meetings for a few years, but I can clearly remember the reality of what I was being briefed about when I was Defence Minister, and I can imagine that there's only so much more grave in terms of the concerns that are there now. So I had in the back of my mind, when faced with that reality, then the Labor government would be forced to be totally realistic about what's happening in our region, and particularly close to home. And you see what's happening in the Solomon Islands, for example, the attempts by the CCP to gain a foothold in Papua New Guinea, uh, recent comments from uh, Timor-Leste, about the willingness possibly to uh, have more Chinese presence. I mean, th this is on our doorstep. And I don't think any government that's uh, elected to take care of the number one priority of the national government, namely the defence of the nation, uh, could be anything other than concerned about what's happening at the moment. Now to the big question, what can Australia do in practical terms to support Taiwan? I don't think we've got much military capability that would be relevant in a situation like that, even if we were able to deploy it. But is there other assistance we can provide, even if just moral support? I think there's a number of things we can do, Nick. The first is miracle. Um, we shouldn't just keep repeating Beijing's lines about reunification. We hear them talk about reunification. We should point out that the CCP has never ruled Taiwan, and the people of Taiwan are not in favour of reunification. So when we hear these claims from China, we have to clearly, respectfully, but forcefully say, this is a load of nonsense, it's a load of nonsense, and put out the reality of the situation. So that's the first thing, just giving support. And what the Taiwanese said to me when I was there just a few weeks ago, that it's important that people actually speak up for Taiwan. Equally, it's important that people visit, whether it's people like myself or, more importantly, current serving members of a parliament or a congress, for them to visit on a regular basis is important. So that rhetorical commitment to Hong Kong to Taiwan is very important. But the second thing is that we can do things in, in concert with other nations. I think, as we discussed, that we should be improving the trading relationship, formalising a free trade agreement, uh, looking at other ways in which we can strengthen those ties on a trading basis and a formal basis with Taiwan. Thirdly, though, we do, with in concert with other nations, have a place to play in terms of a deterrence to China. I remember when I was the defence minister asking the then, then Chief of Navy, is there any reason we can't say an Australian warship through the Taiwan Straits once a month? To which the answer was theoretically no. If Australia and Japan and the United States and Canada and even Germany, which has sent a boat through that area in the last 12 months or so, and the UK 
and France and others uh, in concert who were all concerned about this situation basically had some sort of timetable to have a real presence in that area that would send a clear warning to the CCP that there are dangers in us it's stepping out of line. If we don't, then proclamation that somehow it owns the Taiwan Strait looks more real. Should we perhaps speak more frankly to clear up any misunderstanding there might be about Australia's position and any ambiguity that was left by the communique that was signed between Australia and China in December 1972. Let me, I'll just read you a bit of that. The Australian government recognises the government of the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China, acknowledges the position of the Chinese government that Taiwan is a province of the People's Republic of China and has decided to remove its official representation from Taipei before January 25th, 1973. Pretty stark and pretty rushed, wasn't it? And there's no room for wriggle in there, unlike the American agreement of the same period, which talks about China's right to peaceful unification. It's very clear on that point. Yes. We, it, would it be helpful if we, at a high level, perhaps at the prime ministerial level or foreign minister, we just came out with a clear statement of our current position? Well, we could do a couple of things, Nick. I think we could just quietly say to the Chinese, this is our current position. We're going to look with looking at the reality of what's happened since then. Taiwan is an independent state. If you look at the comments made, for example, by the then president of Taiwan back in the you know, 70s and 80s, they were talking about the possibility that there could be some sort of democracy on both sides of the Taiwan Straits. That's not the case and it's not going to occur in any short time when we're talking about mainland China. I think we should be simply saying that the reality is whatever was said in 1972, that 50 years later, Taiwan is, as a matter of fact, an independent state, which we recognise. Kevin, we've been discussing very weighty matters today, a strategic, global strategic balance, the stability of the liberal world order, the peace in Taiwan. But I've got to ask you another question. How have you been since the election? What's life been like out of Parliament after 31 years? I've actually been busy, Nick. I've had lots of loose ends to tidy up. Um, I had 31 years worth of archives, which I'm still working through. I sent off about 30 boxes for the National Library a few weeks ago, but I've still got many more to work through so that I can get rid of them. And, and then I'm looking, say when asked, I'm between jobs at the moment. I'm not quite sure what the next one is, but I'm looking forward to making a continuing contribution to the life and well-being of this nation. Whatever it is, Kevin, we hope to catch up with you on a regular basis. And as I did encourage you to, uh, after your marvellous book, Great Rivalries, the story of Italian and British, uh, sorry, Australian, I'll start that again. After your marvellous book, Great Rivalries, Cycling and the Story of Italy, which was, I thought, a terrific book about focusing on the rivalry between Gino Bartali Fausto, and Fausto Coppi, the two Italian champions. I thought after reading that book, you had a career as a writer and historian ahead of you. Any other books in the pipeline? I'm currently working on a book on China, Nick. I'm hoping I will get it finished this year. I've been writing a lot on China. I spend at least an hour every day researching and keeping up to date with what, however I can with what's happening in China. So I hope by the end of the year that will be finished and hopefully published in the new year. Otherwise, I started writing some memoirs, but that's a long-term process. Thank you, Kevin. We look forward to reading both those books in due course. Pleasure to be with you, Nick. Thank you. 
you've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Thank you.